take a girl and a guy, and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Check us out online at couplesynergy.com and be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experiences working with thousands of couples for over 15 years. Everyone says you need to work on a relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. In this episode, Gene and I will be talking about fear of commitment and some of the trends that we're seeing in relationships today. We'll also be talking about cohabitation and as it relates to different generations as well. Cohabitation is, uh, just to kind of define that, that would be living with a partner in a relationship not necessarily married or kind of legally bound in some way. And right now, currently in the United States, uh, just over 50% of people who cohabitate get married. And 60% of married couples lived together before they got married. What's very interesting about the statistics about cohabitation is the fact that how it relates to uh, the different generations getting married. Right. And you know, when you think about the silent generation, the era is 1920 to 1940. Um, 65% of couples got married. Right? That got was married the, young. Got married young. That's the uh, statistic. Mm-hmm. And with the baby boomers, 1940, 1960, 48% of them got married young. And 1960 to 1980, Generation X, 36%. We can see this downward trend with uh, the millennials, 1980 to 1997, with 26% getting married young. So what this indicates is either, you know, A, couples are getting married, as the generations move on, they're getting married later in life, or B, that they are choosing not to get married and just to cohabitate in a relationship. I think culturally it's different as well. You know, my grandparents, they would get a job and stay there for 40 years, get their gold watch. People really didn't divorce. They didn't really consider their happiness, but they very much considered society and society's rules. It was definitely a standard. Right. Right. And it was an expectation Mm -hmm. that when you married, when you met someone and uh, formed a relationship with them, the pressure was to commit and to uh, settle down and get married and have children. Right. Whereas some of the statistics that we're seeing now in today's day and age, um, that is not the case. Um, There's actually an article that was written by uh, Mahela Alaru in 2017, the title was Why Most Millennials Want a Relationship But Not Commitment. And some of those statistics about the generations, you know, came from that article. 
But some of the inferences that she made in the article about millennials not wanting to uh, commit but have a relationship, she, she said that, uh, one, there was a lack of solid economic foundation within that generation. Right. Yeah. I, I lived on my own when I was 17 and was financially independent, whereas most kids today can be on their parents' insurance till they're 26. They're going to college without possibly ever having a job. And so they're much later in life before they're financially independent. Right. It's taking a lot longer for them to get their career started and mm-hmm. to be financially independent. And because of college, they're starting their life in debt. Correct. Right. Right. And the second reason or inference that she makes is selfishness. Now, this is very interesting. And I kind of have to read this because it's, you know, an interesting uh, aspect that she, she wrote about. Over half of the respondents to the above mentioned survey confessed that they found it difficult to put someone else's needs above their own, especially after being raised to only worry about themselves. Today's young generation is formed of self-sufficient individuals who do not need someone else to be happy. I think that has a lot to do with their parents. And the way they were raised, I, I think the millennials are over 50% of them were raised by people who divorced. And I think when that happens, it changes your relationship with your parents and you become elevated to more of a, par- a peer relationship sooner. So you probably have parents who are not as good at taking care of their needs as well as equal making them an equal partner in the relationship. The third reason is a wide acceptance of premarital sex. Right. So, I mean, that that is absolutely, you know, a trend that we're seeing across, mm-hmm. you know, the United States and with each generation, it becomes more and more frequent. I don't think it's just premarital sex. I think it's hookup sex. It isn't sex within a committed relationship. It's having sex to have sex. Well, especially with, uh, you know, the internet and how sex is portrayed in the media, and the fact that it is much more available, accessible, you know, with a lot of the, the hookup apps that are out there, it, it just really pushes more towards having more casual relationships versus something that's much more committed. Right. And like, I know my parents waited until they were married to have sex. That was very common. They got married in the 1960s. And a lot of couples that we interview on our podcast say that they've probably had sex within the first week of dating. Mm-hmm. She, she actually mentioned that if only 29% of young adults considered premarital sex not wrong in the 70s, their number grew to 58% by 2012. Wow. I'm actually surprised it's that low. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, the fourth reason is sexual inactivity. All right, so she's saying that millennials have less sex than the generations preceding them, which is very interesting, you know, kind of contrast the the last one mm-hmm. uh, as far as it being much more widely acceptable of premarital sex. She's saying that millennials are actually having less sex. Well, that would make sense considering they connect more through the Internet. You know, I remember our son who is 20 mm-hmm. going to his friend's house and doing land parties where they all brought their computer and they played computer games in the same room, but they still weren't really interacting. And I think their ability to connect and trust and bond with each other is a lot lower than it used to be. And also, I think that pressure to be a sexual person without knowing someone or dating probably makes the ones that are shy much more of a fear to reach out. 
So, you know, the ones that are going for it are doing it and the rest are probably just holding back. Well, also with, you know, some of some of those millennials living with their parents a lot longer, you know, because they're trying to get their career up and running and trying to become more independent, gives them less opportunity really to foster a relationship, especially an intimate one. You don't want to bring someone home to your, you know, your parents' house. I remember our older son, he is 31 right now. When he was in high school, most of the kids did not date. They went to, you know, the homecoming and proms in groups. And there were very few of them that were a couple. And I think it's that thing too, where you can't just go to a dance with someone without either being their partner or it being just a casual friendship. There's not, there's not a lot of in between for them. The fifth reason she mentions is favoring more options. Marriage reduces one's partner options, whereas a 2016 study shows that people prefer to have more choices. If no one and nothing forces millennials to choose, why would they voluntarily narrow down their options? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. They talk about that with their toys that that kids don't have toys anymore. They have collections. <laughs> right. Right. So I think it has to do with that, that there's such a plethora of opportunity that, you know, it, would, it might make it more difficult. Number six, taking things slow. The Scientific American cites Helen Fisher, Rutgers University biological anthropologist and Match.com chief scientific advisor and argues that today's youth prefers to sleep around know more people, and gain life and relationship experience before making commitments. Yeah, and I think earlier marriage, which actually has a a trend toward divorcing, the, the younger you are to get married, the more likely you are to get divorced. Probably we have discouraged kids from making commitments early. You know, and certainly, you know, when I was in high school, you were going to have a job and support yourself, even if you were going to go to college. You know, and today I think kids are expected to do well in school and go to college and get good grades and they're financially supported much later in life as well. And especially if they're not financially stable on their own, there's no way they could support a family and, and you know, starting an, an entire life. Right. Uh, number seven, fear of divorce. Uh, according to Statistic Brain, first marriages have a 10-year survival rate of only 6.6%. Otherwise put, only one in 15 millennials getting married for the first time will have the same partner in marital status, status after 10 years. Yeah, first marriages that, that end before the 10th year mark. Yeah, in, in later in later episode, we'll be talking about divorce. And, and one of the statistics is that currently in the United States, the divorce rate is at about 41, 42% mm -hmm. for first marriages and 60% for second marriages. So you could see why, you know, those statistics are pretty staggering. And, you know, the millennials seeing the past generation, you know, go through divorce or an increase in divorce would really scare them off. You know, we were at a wedding on Saturday and they did the, the generation dance where you start dancing. And if you've, you're married less than a year, you have to leave the dance floor. Less than five years, you have to leave the dance floor. It was interesting to watch because when they called less than 10 years, but more than five, nobody left. And then when they said more than 15 or less than 10, nobody left. And it wasn't until they got over 20 
that people started to have to leave the dance floor again. So there were no married couples there between five years and almost 20 years. Uh, proud to say that we made it to the 20 year. In fact, we're going on 22 yep. currently. So yeah, kudos to us on that one. Eighth reason, lack of trust. Although hard to believe today's young men and women are distrustful. They have no problem connecting with others online, but they don't trust their dates. According to the Scientific American, 54% of online daters suspect their partner's social media profiles feature false or fake information. It's, uh, it's very interesting because of, you know, the Internet and online profiles. Unfortunately, you know, that does promote people to, to lie and to hide behind a false persona of who they are. The pathways are so unclear. You know, it used to be you could start at the bottom and work your way up like in a company. And even going to college, I mean, it's very uncertain what you need to do to actually get into the college of your choice. And and I think kids work really hard. We see a lot of them work very hard. And they're 4.0 honor students with all this extracurricular activity. And then they get rejected from half the schools they apply to just because the competition is so great. Because so I think there's more of a powerlessness of... How, how they can be in control of their life and what they can count on. Right, right. The ninth reason, lack of religious and social constraints. So the previous generations cared more about religious and social constraints. According to Pew Research Center, this generation is more liberal. It does not rush to declare itself its belief in God. And it is not appalled by same-sex or interracial marriages, adultery, babies born outside of wedlock, etc., yeah, that was more normal for them. I think, you know, kind of to expound upon that, I think there is kind of a dissolution of of community. The fact that, you know, religious organizations really provided more of a community, they also kind of provided a structure and rules to live by. But as more and more of the younger generations kind of move away from religious communities, religious organizations, you know, they, they are not bound by any of those community and societal rules. I, I think they also lack that within themselves to be disciplined, to do or create something that they really want. I mean, I think aside from a sports team, there's, I mean, there's going to school, but there's not like that internal drive, like, what do I want? It's what does a coach want or what does a teacher want is what does something else want, but not that internal drive to say, you know, I want to get a job because I want to buy my own clothes or I want to, you know, take a trip or something. At a young age, there's not, there's not a lot of motivation and drive anymore. Well, the problem is that the formula is set out for them. Mm -hmm. You have to go to college. You have to first get good grades in high school. You have to know exactly what you want to study in college. Then you have to apply to the colleges that have that program. You have to be the best at it and be very diverse and then do very well in college and get your internships and then, you know, get your career and get married and have the house with a three-car garage, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're taught that going to school is like a, a sure ticket to having a successful life, and then you look at the statistics of divorce, how can you count on that? Right. The tenth reason she mentions is shallow relationships. Uh, the relationships of many millennials are a matter of convenience. The partners decide to live together in order to save money, get away from their parents, or 
simply because they don't have better perspectives. They do not care about one another enough to take things to the next level, plan a wedding, and commit to making one another happy. Which kind of talks about the um, concept that Scott Stanley has and the study that he did with Galena Rhodes about sliding versus deciding. Right, exactly. And his whole concept about sliding versus deciding comes from kind of a report and study that they had done, found that couples in today's day and age, they don't make decisions moving from one uh, life path, would you say, transition transition Mm -hmm. to another. They kind of slide into those different stages in their relationship. Right, like they don't make a formal commitment to their partner. They don't actually commit and make a plan to live together. It's more like, well, my lease is up or you've been hanging out and your toothbrush is here. So, you know, why don't you just stay? Right. Back in the day, it was, you know, let's go steady. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a promise ring, you know, and then I'm going to ask your parents for your hand in marriage. And then we're going to get engaged and we're going to have a long engagement and then we're going to get married and then we're going to announce to our parents that we're having a child. So like these these life transitions were marked by significant decision making points that each person in the couple had to sit down, talk about it, you know, and decide together that they're moving to that next phase in the relationship. You know, and that happens you know that the other person is headed in the same direction as you. But when you're sliding, you're giving up your options without knowing if the other person is really committed or if they're just hanging out with you. And I think that is the, it, it adds to that feeling of what can I really count on? Well, you think about like New Year's resolutions, you know, and just making a goal in general, you're more inclined to succeed at that goal if you are publicly committing to that, you're letting people know that this is what I am going to achieve. This is what I'm working on. You are more inclined to really invest in making that happen. And so if a couple is letting the world know that we are moving into the next phase in our relationship, it kind of puts a lot more dedication into the relationship. They're much more invested in accountability as well. Right. And especially when they get support from their family and friends and the community that they're surrounded with. Yeah, we went to a um, engagement party about six years ago. Yeah. <laughs> they're still not married. They're still not married. So couples today are getting engaged, but there's no wedding date. Right. So it kind of moves us into the next part of this, and that's talking about stages of marriage. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think it would be important Gene, if we talked a little bit about, you know, in these stages, at what point would fear creep in and prevent a couple from moving into that next stage? And so the first stage of marriage and relationship, really, we should mm-hmm. say, okay, because we're also talking about couples who don't get married right. specifically, but the first stage is called romance, right? Right. And, and as a caveat here, there are different philosophies out there about how many stages mm-hmm. in a relationship there are. And I've heard between three to seven, depending on who you're talking to and which researcher. But, you know, for our sake and our podcast and, and kind of what we do in couple Synergy, we've settled on four. So romance would be the first stage. Right. And that's when you have all that brain chemistry that 
you know, keeps you up at night and you talk all night and you don't need to eat and you can live on sunshine and rainbows. Right. Adrenaline, norepinephrine, dopamine, oh, all the good stuff mm-hmm. makes you feel really good inside. Yeah. And then the next phase is the commitment phase. So that, that first phase lasts about nine months to two years. And there's a lot of studies out there in uh, on brain scans that show the difference that's happening in your brain. But then that starts to taper off when the oxytocin center starts to kick in and actually creates that bond, which leads to the commitment phase. And there's very little risk in the romance phase. Right. In that romance phase, you and your partner could talk about anything, even if you have differing opinions Mm -hmm. about politics or religion or all those other topics that are pretty controversial. You're more willing and inclined to listen to your partner's point of view and be accepting of it. You probably have separate finances and separate responsibilities that the other person can't really let you down with yet. Right, right. And a lot of times you have different places that you live. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So there really is very, very little risk on combining things or trying to figure out, you know, how to compromise on things. Right. So at, at that point, really, there's very little fear, um, I would say, mm-hmm. that comes up little in that risk. phase. Very little risk, which mm-hmm. also there's little fear of of committing or moving to that next phase in right. a relationship. There is a study out there that does show that the more a person moves from one relationship to another and stays in more of a superficial phase, like the romance phase, they are less likely to be able to move into those more committed phases in a relationship. Just because they, the brain chemistry gets kind of used to those, that, that hit of the dopamine and the adrenaline. It's and, almost like an addiction. Right, right. And so they, they kind of, because as those chemicals are starting to diminish in the brain, you know, they're looking for more and more of that. So they want more of a thrill than they want safety and security. And bonding. And yep, and connection. Right. As as a couple has more intimate times, that's when you're going to be introducing uh, the neurotransmitters like oxytocin and, and vasopressin, which, you know, acts as kind of a counterbalance with those really good chemicals of, you know, in the romance phase. Right. So if you, you know, you think about planting a plant and in the initial phases, you need a lot of water and a lot of, you know, food for it and you have have to care for it. But then once the roots start to grow, it kind of sustains itself. And, And that doesn't take so much dependency on other things. And so if you don't get to that stage, it kind of withers. Right. And hence the commitment phase, which is a a pretty challenging one for Mm -hmm. couples, you know, and this is where couples are are making commitments uh, beyond just logistics, like where are we going to live and, you know, what do we do with our money? How do we combine that? How do we make decisions about purchasing? You know, how do we combine families and family events and, and all of that? But it's really more about, you know, in addition to that, it, it it's about, you know, committing to each other. You know, and, and the unspoken rules. Right. And trying to find that balance point um, mm-hmm. between each other. I think a lot of couples, if they are in the going into the commitment phase while they still have those 
brain chemistries of the romance phase, they're not thinking too hard about it. It all seems really fun and like an adventure. And it isn't until they're really deep into the commitment phase after they've been married, set up house, maybe have a kid. And then it starts to get challenging where they get into the transition stage. Right, right. And and I think people who don't make commitments at that stage get a lot of fear because that brain chemistry that kind of gives you this, this glimpse of what it could possibly be like being mated to someone for life starts to, you know, diminish a little bit. And then you, you have the connection without the commitment. And so you don't feel that security or that safety and connection like you would because things are still very separated. Mm-hmm. And, and in commitment phase, this is really where the couple first starts to find themselves in the middle of conflicts. Right. Right. Because they're trying to negotiate and try to compromise and find that balance point between each other. Conflict is not a very pleasant thing in a relationship. And so what happens is that that little risk that they were having in the romance phase, it starts to grow. And so now those topics that they used to talk about and they were open and honest with each other and forthcoming, they start to dial it back and they start to be a little bit more careful about what they're saying and what they're talking about. And they start to censor what they're saying. And initially, the intention is good. They don't want to start a fight. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to hurt their partner. They don't want their partner to be angry with them. But you know, with that good intention comes a lot of bad results. You know, and, and if a person hasn't learned how to be disciplined in their life, relationship requires a lot of discipline. You know, like you have to come home after work. You can't just blow the other person off or not pick your kid up from daycare or all the other, not pay your bills, all those other responsibilities. So I think at the same time, they're kind of grieving their childhood and that freedom and they don't yet know the the payoff of the discipline and the commitment. Right. So along comes the transition phase. Mm-hmm. And, and where would you say this this comes about? Like at what, what year into a, a relationship? I would say it lasts from three till 10. No, no, it's longer than that. It's closer to 20. That those transitions, there's so many things happening and a lot of, Couples never make it past that. You know, I was thinking about the 10 because that's when most first marriages end between eight and 10 years. But it isn't till after the 20 year mark that the brain chemistry goes back to actually even better than it does in the romance phase. And so that's a very long period of time of kind of really forging something really big together. And you're dealing with raising kids and finances and careers and and all sorts of things that we've we've kind of are all dealing with separately in our own little boxes instead of really having a community or a village to help. Uh, In that time also, this is where a lot of past hurts and past wounds from relationships and also from childhood can come to the surface. And this is a, a very difficult thing for couples to deal with, especially when they are juggling having a family and career changes and finances. But on top of that, having to actually figure out how to relate to each other in a, in a safer way. Yeah. The transition phase is really about, you know, your first template of relationship is parent child. 
And so a lot of couples, you know, one is more the parent, the other one's more the child, and then they flip and that one becomes the parent, the other one's the child. And they kind of do that dance because that's all they've learned and that's all they know. And the transition phase is really learning how to be in an adult-adult relationship of both people taking personal responsibility and the feeding and care that they have for each other in their relationship. And as Jean mentioned, if couples can push past that, then they move into a phase called real love. And in this phase, you know, usually you have a couple who is, you know, they're older, their kids are older, kids are are much more self-sufficient at this point. The couple is, is now challenged with turning towards each other and kind of reestablishing their relationship as a couple, spending more time independently with each other and reconnecting as well. Yeah, I think one of the great parts of this phase is that all the other ones are sort of predefined for you. You know, you're supposed to go to school and get good grades and go to college and get married and get a house and get a job. And by the time you get to the real love phase, you've got all that down. You know, you've you've been preparing for retirement and you have financial security and you're making more money and there's less expenses because the kids are are grown and gone. And so now you get to the now what phase and you have to create together something that nobody else can tell you what you want what you want your future to look like. And so it's a really fun phase and a really a challenging phase because you have to create from whatever the partner wants. And if couples haven't figured out nurturing the relationship during the transition phase, by the time they get to this phase, they're kind of looking at each other across the table and and not really knowing who their partner is. And, you know, this is a, a pretty dangerous place for couples if they're in that position because, you know, a lot of couples will will say they don't really have anything anymore. And then they might might choose to divorce at that point. Right. And I think that's why, you know, couple synergy, either the weekend intensive or the couple to couple program, both address that whether you're in the transition stage or in the real love stage of really how to do that. And what are the underlying factors, you know, we all bring our baggage into relationships and we get wounded through relationships and we heal through relationships, but nobody shows us how to do that because it's all very automatic. And until you have someone that can sort of shine a spotlight on what's really going on in your relationship, we tend to just be very reactive. So in our next episode, you're going to hear from Scott and Tanya, who you'll see how they got through that romance phase and had a really difficult time getting to the commitment phase and how they work through that. Absolutely. We hope to see you there. We want to wholeheartedly thank you for joining us today and for listening to Couples Synergy. We hope that by listening to this episode, it was not only beneficial for your life, but also for your relationship. And for all of you listening out there, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review. It would be very helpful for us. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, again, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs, such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Until next time, synergize your life, synergize your love. 
You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez. <laughs>